I went uh, in uh, in the closet earlier today, but I did can't come out again. <laughs> but uh, in the closet, in my suitcase, I found this. That I had forgotten I had packed many weeks ago for this retreat in the bottom of my suitcase and looking for intimate things in my suitcase. <laughs> this came out. So, um, would you there or at the feet of the Buddha? Or wrapping the Buddha? However you want, with your creative will, Anushka. Better late than never. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought... um, afternoon that it could be um, good to visit together one of the uh, essential uh, teachings of of, uh, Buddhism, of the Buddha, Um, and uh, and see, you know, if uh, if we can recognize in there uh, uh, some truth, some, some recognize our experience either here on retreat or um, the experience in our, uh, in our life. Um, and um, I thought about this because yesterday uh, Anushka was talking about uh, Dukkha. And I thought, oh, that could be, um, that could be um, you know, a, a good way in, the, also the, or a good way to follow with the Four Noble Truths. And uh, um, yeah, so uh, that's what's coming. Actually, um, this is the first teaching that I personally was uh, I received uh, the first time I um, encountered the Buddhism was. Uh, at, at least orally in a retreat uh, the first night I was on a retreat I think or that's how I remember it that's what was presented and that's how for me uh, I, I had this sense of um, uh, yeah coming home you know there was a recognition oh I, this sounds so right you know I like uh, yeah it was the beginning of uh, practice for me that is still uh, going on many years uh, later Um, and in uh, in the description of the Four Noble Truths for me there was um, yeah there was healing there was a kind of liberation liberated from false uh, views that I had and there was definitely a taste of of something uh, wise right uh, onward leading Liberating all these uh, words, and uh, so the four noble truths. Uh, uh, um, we could think of the Buddha as um, as the uh, the great doctor, 
And uh, so the first truth is uh, him uh, talking about the symptoms uh, of the disease we're experiencing. And then the second truth is the, the diagnosis. You know, what's the cause of this? And then the third truth is, um, is uh, the, I, I don't know if it's the right word, uh, prognosis. No? Like, what are the chances of getting out of the trouble <laughs> of healing? Prognosis, and then the fourth truth, truth is the prescription. And um, it says that uh, uh, awakening, if we use that term, is basically a deep, uh, deep understanding of these truths in an experiential way. In the you know, from the inside, knowing it from oneself. You know. And in a way, what we do here, uh, what we've been doing the whole week, is getting closer, getting close to these uh, truths in different ways, you know, and, and uh, maybe recognizing them. And it might not be, uh, might not have been in these terms, you know, oh, this is the second one, this is the first one, or it might have been, if you know that uh, this presentation, but. Uh, uh, as as this is being described, you might recognize. Oh yeah, I, I've recognized this. I didn't name it exactly like that, but yeah, I know that experience. Um, and so the first truth, actually, the first truth was actually uh, very well presented yesterday by uh, Anushka, and it's the truth of dukkha. There is uh, dissatisfaction. There is stress. There is uh, suffering. There is uh, separation from what is dear. There is being stuck with what is unwanted. You know, um, and um, uh, yeah, and and to me, the, the the breath of the presentation of dukkha is what's the most impressive. And uh, I think I was reading uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, who has a, online, is free, and you can buy also this book. Is it called The Noble Eightfold Path? I think. Anyway, it's so very, very thorough, very good reading. And in that, he was saying, like, if I'm going to go see a doctor, I, I want a really good one. You know, I want a doctor that, um, I'm putting this in my words, I want a doctor that can really really tell what's not right, you know, what's hard, and really go to the source, to the real cause, like not, not stop halfway down, you know. Uh, like I want somebody who can really see what's not going right and go to, the, and I want somebody who can tell me really honestly if there can be healing and, and exactly how, you know. And in this way, the, the Buddha would be the great doctor because uh, he does this. And... Uh, and to me, what's impressive in the description of dukkha uh, is how thorough it is. And, um, and um, I remember seeing um, um, a play uh, many years ago in Montreal. It was a, a company from, a theater company from, uh, from England coming with their English humor. And uh, 
the, the name of their company is Forced Entertainment. And they were exploring uh, entertainment. What's the edge of entertainment? You know, what is entertaining and what suddenly is not anymore? And so part of this was the length of the play. The, the length of the show was, uh, you know, several hours. <laughs> and then already there you could see like, oh, for me, uh, an hour, 55 minutes is, <laughs> is entertaining. You know, beyond that. And so that's, I, I think it's a really interesting uh, uh, thing to uh, go see. Like, w- what is entertaining and what is not? And so there was one weird number after the other exploring entertainment and, and mostly the edge of it. <laughs> and uh, in the first uh, act that came, so uh, uh, this person came in front and I said, welcome everyone, please, uh, you know, relax. Uh, I hope you enjoy yourself. We're here to entertain you. And so please do not think about the things that are difficult in your life. You know, already there, that's really weird. <laughs> uh, you're actually making me think of it, you know. Don't, don't think about anything that is difficult for you, you know. Uh, and then this person proceeded in naming everything that is difficult. And it went on for like 20 minutes and people were leaving, you know, the, the room. And, uh, you know, and I remember, like, they were naming everything. I, it was really thorough. <laughs> and at some point, for example, at the very, very beginning, uh, this person said, uh, um, you know, we're here in Montreal, downtown, corner of uh, St. Catherine and St. Laurent. Um, in the whole of Canada, the insurance companies say that it's the worst place for um, car stealing. <laughs> so if you're parked around here, please don't think about this. <laughs> that will ruin your evening. You know, and then they went on everything medical, everything relational, everything to do with work, everything to do with, you know, global stuff, society, culture, you know. And they kept going. And uh, in a way, you had have, you have to be pretty solid to, to stay there, you know. And, and, uh, and they were kind of waves, you know, you would, like, be visited by despair and then laughter because it was such a weird situation. And they kept going, kept going, you know, very slowly, kind of mindfully naming, you know. And uh, after I thought, uh, I thought they, they named everything. And later, a few days after, I think I thought, actually, no. That was just like one-third. If you, if you look at Buddhist view of dukkha, you know, and so they were no, naming dukkha dukkha what is clearly difficult. There's no doubt about this. You know, we won't fret or debate about this. You know. And then they were they were leaving out what was uh, the dukkha, the difficulties of the ephemerality of things. You know, things beautiful ending, and us being aware of this. You know. I don't know if uh, the retreat might be in the dukkha dukkha realm for you. <laughs> or it might be in the kind of anicca dukkha, the, you know, oh, it's going to end, you know. Um, and uh, that's to me already very, very poignant that the nature of reality is that we live in a reality where things can escape, will finish. You know, and knowing this, this 
And, and to me, these teachings, uh, I'm thinking now, maybe all these teachings that we've been looking at this week, that's, that's pretty much how I understand, all these teachings are leading straight to tenderness. <coughs> you know, when you become aware that this is our experience, that there is difficulties to meet, and things that are beautiful, but they vanish. You know, encounters finish. You know, what comes together comes apart. You know, health. You think, oh, I might have relative health right now. You know, it's going to change. And so here we come to uh, come closer to this to actually experience it, not to hear about it, but experience it in reality. And I remember one time I was um, uh, sitting a long retreat, and I think it was a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, and uh, towards the end of the retreat, very close to uh, Christmas, I was walking in the woods, and the mind was really, really calm and connected, you know, like it was... Uh, Things were very vibrant, almost like if, as if I was in an enchanted forest. But the main ingredient was the quality of the mind that was there, you know. And um, and there was a snow falling, and then there was a really uh, something unique happened with wind and uh, and snow and light and the play of light. Though I. I it's been so long that I don't even remember what it was. I just remember that I was there and I was thinking, this might be the most beautiful thing I'll ever see in my life. And this I will probably never see again. When it was taking particular conditions, I didn't know what they were, but you know, they, all of them, but there was some kind of, a, you know, snow twisting in the ray of light with the wind, but several of these things tw- twisted, like totally magical. And I was there, and I was uh, seeing what, to me at that point, and again probably today, is one of the most beautiful things I ever saw. And it was happening. The most beautiful thing was happening. <laughs> and I knew it would finish. I knew I could not share it with other people you know I didn't have time to go get people to see this because you know you had to be there because it was just there for a few seconds you know it would change and uh, and then it did change you know and there was something deeply touching for me I was like oh, I've just been exposed is that the right word mm-hmm. to you know kind of a, a ultimate kind of beauty for the eyes you know and it didn't solve, you know, like I, like it was beautiful, but it didn't totally do it. It was very touching to notice this. It was really beautiful, but it was also going, going, going to go, going, gone, and not absolutely satisfying. And so that's kind of a one particular aspect of dukkha, you know, is, is uh, even the most beautiful thing can't actually do it completely. To me that was a, kind of an insight. Wow. So I might, all my life, want 
things like this, you know. But now, with the quality presence, I was exposed to beauty. It was deeply touching. Uh, yet, it didn't solve the human problem, you know. How amazing is that? And this uh, was leading right then and there to some kind of compassion for the human uh, predicament, you know. Wow, things are not going to be satisfying in this deep or sustainable, perfect way, you know. But they, they are going to, you know, there's going to be gratification and beauty and sense and meaning and richness but everything being in flux. Uh, and so maybe, yeah, it, bring, it brought some compassion, but also a lot of curiosity for the human predicament. So how to inhabit human life, you know, if even this event is not going to do it, you know? And so in the description of Dukkha, seems to say that everything that is compounded, made of something else, constructed, dependent, contingent on something else, is shaky, unreliable. You know, because it depends on conditions, it can change. And often it's not changing, but yet we know that it could. We don't even need it to change just the knowledge that it could makes us a little stressed. Do you know what I mean? You know? Or if there's something we want because it seems like it's going to be satisfying and it, becoming aware that we don't have um, can con- control over all the conditions, that it might actually not happen. Although it would be fair, just, beautiful, wouldn't hurt anybody else, you know. The fact that it might not exactly be able to come together is a particular situation to find ourselves in. So an experience of lack of control, that we can't control somebody else's happiness, you know. It's only beautiful to want somebody else to be happy or safe. And human beings, we don't have you know, control over this. <coughs> so, and again, for me, wow, leads straight to uh, compassion, tenderness. Of course, it could lead to, um, you know, anger. It could lead to cynicism. It could lead to giving up. You know, but that would only add to the problem. So that's what we're coming here to clarify. Oh, if life is like this, then I hate it. Hating it is the second arrow. Not only is life difficult, but hating it is not solving the problem at all. You know, being uh, resentful to, towards it is, is just aggravating. Do you agree with that? You know, so what's the way out? This becomes a real question. You know, if I'm going to hate it, it doesn't work so well. If I desire something else, another life where it happens as I, as I want, you know, let's try this then. We're not going to hate life. We're going to 
dream of a life where we have control, where we know what's coming, where beauty stays, where you know, comfort or safety remains, you know, stable, reliable. Let's dream of that. Sages have said, this is very difficult too, because that's not the nature of reality. So you're going to kind of chase hope for something that won't provide, you know, won't happen. What to do then? And so that's how I understand the teachings for me. It's saying, well, one of the ways to meet this wisdom in a wise way is care, tenderness, capacity to meet, stabilizing the heart or making it courageous, you know, so that it can actually meet uncertainty, uh, powerlessness. And of course they are not the only features of life, you know, there is creativity, there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, agency, there is uh, there's a lot of things at play. Uh, but these are definitely part of the deal, I think, powerlessness. And, yeah, how to me this? To me is why I would come in a place like here, to actually become aware of the nature of reality and then learn how to hold it, you know. And so the teaching of Dukkha seems to say anything of the world, not a thing of the world, can absolutely do it. But I thought, you know, the next relationship will be it. I thought you would be it. And I'm finding out you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Or you are, but... I'm aware that you could go, you could, you know, life, disease, death, you know. Wow, very, uh, to me it's extremely poignant. So this is the breath of naming the problem. And then the the cause is really, uh, in a way, surprising. You would say, you would think the cause is that, that it's not as I want it. But the cause that the Buddha named seemed otherwise, seemed other. Seemed to have said the cause of uh, the trouble here, the real trouble, is an event that happens in the mind-heart. It's something that happens and can not happen. Possibility of freedom here. So what is the cause of our suffering? Clinging. It's a mental event, a kind of... um, So clinging could be, uh, in this way, uh, wanting it to be otherwise, clinging to the idea that it should be otherwise, it should have been otherwise. Uh, I should feel uh, in a different way. You know, so clinging with a kind of a grasping desire, greed, you know, this very, very painful. Uh, There's many descriptions of uh, this one event, 
you know, so it's, you know, there was a clarification for me also in that. It was like, this is one thing. The cause is one thing clinging. It's not like, oh, the causes of suffering is the neighbor on the left, <laughs> uh, the employer, society, that particular institution. You know, like, there are not many causes. <laughs> you know, it says there's one. It's, it's a mental event. And so, therefore, there's something to do that can be done about it. And that's why we come here, to check what is clinging, what is non-clinging. So I'm going to try here to describe uh, a few uh, ways that we cling. And so there is clinging to uh, experience of the senses. So when something is uh, delicious, beautiful, often the mind will cling, want to keep, want to get more of, You know, and that's painful. It actually cuts the ability to feel and enjoy, be touched, be nourished by what is good. You know, because you know. So I don't know. You get good feedback uh, from somebody. It could be at work or in a relationship. You know? oh, I love when you do this or you did this well. You know, and often we can't actually totally feel it or we feel it for a second we're like but can I keep this up you know will everybody agree you know will others see it that I did good you know do you see what I mean how the mind will cling like this and it clings also to what is disagreeable often not always and that's what we come here to check out you know what is what it, how does it feel when we cling and how does it feel when we don't and so um You know, when something is hard, often we'll keep it, you know. You know, in 87, when you send this, <laughs> I remember. I don't remember what exactly you said, but I remember. <laughs> what is it you said? <laughs> I'm still angry anyway. <laughs> and so in a way we, uh, we haven't seen uh, that the thing has passed we haven't noticed because with our idea we made it solid and we kept it in a way cherished it uh, it's only natural we would do that you know, there's probably biological reasons for that but we're push pushing a little further here the investigation, the exploration you know So here we come and we create silence and tension to see at some point, oh, look at this thing, there is clinging. There's the mind got hooked on this and is kind of uh, fascinated by this. It can't, it doesn't have the discernment to see that it's gone. You know? So it's still, uh, you know? And a big part of what we do is, is just sit here and keep realizing that it's okay here now. Okay here now. You know, these people are not here, these things are not happening, they're mind-made, you know. And so a lot of the practice, I think, is just, oh, here, the body's sitting. It's not actually happening, you know. It's, it's not, it's a...
So in this way we uh, we cling, sense pleasure, experiences of the senses. Oh, back then, you know, it was so good. We didn't know, we don't know deeply the ephemeral uh, nature of things. They do arise and they pass. No! <laughs> back then it was so fun, you know. It is gone, you know, it is gone. Can we actually... Let it go, you know, instead of keep hoping you know, that, it, that it's somewhere accessible or should be, you know. And so there's a lot of cleaning, uh, I, I'll use that word, I hope it works, you know, to do around these things here. That's why we t- it takes a few days, it takes many days, you know, to actually release things. It's a very touching process. Oh. It's gone. It's really gone. Can it be okay that it's gone? Oh, it was disagreeable. It was hard. Can it be okay that it did happen? You know? Not easy what I'm talking about. Not easy at all. You know? But the Buddha seems to have said, you know, I would not talk about it if it was not possible to do this work. If it was not possible, I would just shut up and be busy with something else, you know. But I take all this time to talk about it because it's possible to clear the heart in this way and have this kind of discernment about the, you know, changing nature of things. Something else that we cling to, check this out, is that true for you, is to views and opinion. Somebody on this side, please. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and so that's an interesting field of practice, even to bring it in our daily lives, you know. When, the, um, you know, I, I can't remember where I read this or something, but uh, it was about uh, our views and opinion uh, in, the, you know... Um, can, maybe should, let's try should, should lead to calm and clarity. Do your views and opinions lead to calm and clarity or they lead to agitation and lack of sleep and, uh, and resentment? And, uh, and so that's, to me, there's a whole field of the Four Noble Truths here. You know, the, the cause of the distress here might be the clinging to the opinion, you know. And it's not like we shouldn't have opinion. The Buddha, if you ask me, had tons of opinions. You know, 45 years of sharing opinions. You know, I think this is how it works. Check it out. You know, no, it doesn't work like this. This is how it works. You don't understand well. You know, many opinions about life. Uh, but maybe two things about these opinions. They were not clung to. And he, you know, he, was, he would say, even no passion about dispassion, you know. No, no. Don't get uptight about letting go, <laughs> you know. About uh, you know selflessness or non-self or don't, you know. Not clinging even to what is the, you know. Not even clinging to the path. You would say the path, you know, is a like a, a raft to cross the flood. The flood of overwhelming emotions, the flood of, you know, 
all the conditionings we receive and self, the flood of self-hatred and self-loathing and this flood of doubt and uncertainty. You know, how did I cross the flood? Uh, Without forcing, without abandoning, that's a good one. But you would say the raft, you know, once you get to the other side, you can't keep carrying the raft, you know, don't cling to the raft. So... This field of the, so his opinion apparently he was not clinging to them it was they were not making him suffer you know plus they were uh, they were uh, wise views wise views so we come here to practice both not clinging but also correcting our view of the world you know and what I'm describing here could serve as a correcting of the view if you recognize the truth in this oh, it's true that stuff can't actually completely provide because it's somewhat shaky. Uh, health is shaky. Uh, relationships, in a way, are. You know, people change their mind. They change. Uh, they get sick. They die. You know, all of these things. And so yesterday I was talking about uh, uh, Bell Hooks and how she was holding views in that particular interview, you know, where there was, uh, it seems like her view were leading to calm, clarity, even love and joy was present in the, in the thing. It's like, wow, that's remarkable. Like most people I know, their views don't lead to clarity and uh, calm. You know? <laughs> Leads to being annoying <laughs> in some ways, you know. So, there's another uh, area of clinging. Again, check this out. And, uh, the Buddha's teaching is presented to clinging to rites and rituals. Rites and rituals. It could be the thought of uh, conventions. And in this uh, context here, that's definitely how I think of it. Anyways, in terms of clinging to norms, you know, and see the suffering in society, clinging to uh, the norms of how, uh, you know, of the gender norms, you know, like such clinging, you know, that, you know, ready to kill for that, you know, or, or attack, be aggressive, and... Uh, and so we can see this in the world and maybe in ourselves, how we cling to, uh, to uh, norms and, you know, like, what is homophobia? It's clinging to norms, you know. A person of this gender should love a person of this gender, you know. And if it doesn't, I'm going to freak out, you know. I'm going to be uncomfortable, I'm going to tolerate it. But, you know, and all, all these things, you know, there's no fluidity around this, you know, there's no... And so, uh, and so we live in a world where there's a lot of clinging to, uh, to uh, norms. And in this particular uh, listing of the types of... Uh, of clinging, uh, we do so. Sense, pleasure, experiences of the senses, um, uh, views and opinion, 
norms. And the, the last one is Clint. That's a big one. That's a big, rich field of exploration and of suffering <laughs> here. is clinging to, to uh, things as I or mine. Oh, we just fell in the heart of the Buddhist uh, uh, thought and practices. You know. So how we appropriate appropriate, uh, make mine things that don't belong exactly to moi. And we are mistaken. It's a mistaken view. So we cling to to a mistaken understanding of reality. And then we suffer. And so this is like rampant and latent and, you know, uh, in all kinds of ways. So which one will I name here? Well, anything that... Uh, let's, let's start with material things. This is mine, this is I. I'm not talking about on a relative level. Huh? So there's different levels of this. We can agree this is yours, this is mine. But ultimately, like in an absolute way, is anything material really yours? Yes. <laughs> Not if I take it. If I take it, if I don't agree with that convention, conventional reality, relative reality, if I don't agree with this, I take it, it'll become clear it was not yours. Well, let not put me in the place of the one who breaks the, <laughs> the agreement here. But, you know, these agreements are, you know, uh, um, they're broken all the time, you know. In Montreal, I don't know how many times I've owned a bike. You know? And somebody has generously came to open my eyes about ownership. Say, you, know? so you, you can't own that, you know. And, you know, and uh, for me, one of the major one I told you about is that day in the doctor's office when he said, oh, you thought Elf was yours. It was not yours. It belonged to the conditions, and the conditions have changed. You know, so health is gone. You know, ah, that's a big shock. You know, because I I was clinging to a view and a wrong one. This is mine, mine forever. I'm in control of that. Well, no, not exactly. You know, is it your memory? Not exactly. It's memory. You know. And, you know, sometimes it's flinching a bit, <laughs> or it's starting to, you know, and it might actually vanish completely. It does. It will, in a way. And so this also is very, very poignant for, for me to be, become aware of this. Nothing is absolutely mine. You know, things belong to conditions. And so... This brings compassion, but also it can bring a deep release. Oh, not mine. You know? And what we're learning to do here, I, my sense of it, is not to own even more, it, but it's to take care of. Oh, there's fear. It's not mine, but it's definitely there. What do we do with it? Oh, there's ache. What do we do with this? Oh, there's joy. 
you know, joys of the public domain. Sometimes on this side, sometimes on that side, you know. And it cannot be absolutely owned, you know. I'm a joyful person, really. <laughs> what happened when they told you the plane was uh, delayed? <laughs> or the company went bankrupt, <laughs> you know. Where was the joyful person? <laughs> you know, gone there, yeah. You know? And so, so what we're talking is at, at a more subtle level, you know, it's not to say, I can't use this word mine or me, but yes, I can. But as the Buddha said, you know, I know the limit of that language. Yes, I use that language, but I know the limit. I'm aware. Because otherwise it would be really painful. You know, I'd be very confused. But I want it to be mine. I thought it was mine, you know. No, it's there, we take care of it. And uh, with uh, this practice of not, uh, not uh, letting go of the habit of, um, you know, defining, identifying absolutely with anything, with this, there's a, I think the, the fear of death maybe it slowly is released. You know, because we here we pay attention moment by moment and we discover that the person walking in the field earlier is gone. There was the death of that one, you know. And the one who was thinking about this or that is also gone. Now there's this one. Wait just a few minutes. This one will be gone also. There'll be another moment, mind moment, experience there. So this is a rich field that the clinging to things as self, I, mine, you know, is uh, is very, very rich. Um, years of investigation there. So the teaching says that things are fabricated. They depend on other things to, to appear. And what we learn to do is to take care of these things. Um, and uh, there's a friend, uh, Marlon um, Barrios Solano, who uh, works at... Uh, <coughs> amongst many things, works at the Inside Meditation Society. He's uh, one of the cooks there. And, but he's also a dancer and a kind of an academic around movement and dance. And, uh, and uh, he was telling me uh, a few months ago that uh, he was um, somewhere taking a, doing a workshop in voguing. There's many... I think it was a gathering of queer artists and exchanging practices. You know? And there was a, a voguing uh, performer who was um, uh, teaching, and he said he gave the most beautiful um, teaching on uh, on non-self, which we call sometimes emptiness, em- empty of the core, absolute self. You know, things are conditioned, constructed. You know, and uh, he said. Uh, 
I don't know, it's like somebody was kind of on a catwalk uh, and he was coaching them in the voguing, you know, and he was saying something like, uh, you can be absolutely fabulous because the other you, the boring you, is not you either. <laughs> it's all constructed, you know, so you can totally, uh, you know, inhabit fabulousness, you know, like don't, you, you know, you can claim it, you can, you know, you can, uh, you can play with it, it can become your fluid identity, for a few moments. I'm putting it in my words, but uh, Marlon was saying, this like blew my mind in terms of like uh, opening the gate, you know, like I, I, there is a fluidity possible in the expression of self, you know, uh, because we're not one thing only, you know. Um, and uh, in this way, I was, uh, I'm thinking of um, uh, another friend, uh, man, trans man, who was telling me um, I think something happened, and uh, he said, oh my God, like, I've been socialized as a girl. You know, so this kind of training, conditioning comes up all the time. You know, I'll, I'll do these things because I've been trained. There's been a training. It's been, you know, put in there. This is you, this is you, this is you. And we start believing this, you know. And here we can actually clarify these things. That's a deep, deep sense of integrity and, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, the clarity of like, hold on, what are the conditionings that I received from society that are just that? Conditionings, they're actually not uh, in line with, uh, uh, you know, what I care for, what I, what I feel, what, uh, what is vibrant here. How do I take care of what's here? Oh, so what's here is this. Let's honor that. Let's honor that. <coughs> so there's many ways to talk about this uh, second truth through these kinds of clinging. Clinging to be. Clinging not to be. Clinging to have, you know desire to have, to be. All these ways that uh, we uh, get in trouble, get caught. There's one uh, particular kind of clinging and identification to that particular kind of clinging, which is identifying, defining ourselves uh, through something that... uh, uh, When I went to teach in the Netherlands in November... Uh, really struck me. Um, so, in uh, one of the museums there that I went to visit, there was a there was a, an installation from Louise Bourgeois, who's a French uh, artist, very known, respected. And in the room there, there was a big cage. So it's a it's a piece of art. Huh? So there's a big cage. Maybe it was taken all the space here in the middle. And in the middle of the cage, there's a cage. The door of the cage is open. And in the middle of the cage, there is, if you come in the room from a distance, you see there's a being there, this human being. And when you come closer, you say, what is that? Because there's actually legs, human beings' legs, size of legs, legs like this. And the body is a big turd. 
like classic, you know, almost emoticon-like turd. You know? And the turd is seems to be looking at itself in the mirror. There's a mirror there. There's very little in the cage. There's a cage, door open. The turd can't see the door is open because fascinated by its own image in the mirror. To me, that was suffering to see. You know, wow, look at that. You know, this is a mind construction. Eh? Louise Bourgeois imagined this. She created it's a mind construction. You know, and to me, I look at this. I said, this is many of us. We've built a self. It's a creation of the mind. It's an unworthy one. It's a piece of shit. And we're fascinated by it. We keep referring to it. It's the one unit of measure. You know, everything is in line, you know, from that view, you know. And we're fascinated. We can't actually look around to see what would we discover. A little of looking around, we would discover that the door is open. We're not caught in the cage. You know? A little more investigation, we would discover that this is made up. It doesn't exist. There's no real cage. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an artist thought about this. You know, you can probably lift the thing if you... You know, it's, it, there's not even a turd if you look closer. It's just material, whatever you call it, cloth, you know, stuffed. It's made up by a mind, you know. And to me, that represents our experience of a lot of us. We're there, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm never gonna, you know. It's a construction of the mind, but we can't actually look away. We're fascinated. And so when we come to retreat, to me, that's exactly what we do. We become aware. Oh, look at that creation. Wow. I was enamored with a generation of the mind. Of course, you know, religion pointed to that, suggested that, <laughs> you know, in some ways, and the family did, maybe, and the society, if it was not really covered by everybody else, make sure, you know, in some ways, you know. And so we come here to free this view. It's not easy to do. But, uh, you know, and some of us, maybe we think, I'm the best turd around. You know, <laughs> so there's some clarification to do also. <laughs> you know, I'm a better turd. <laughs> and I thought when I saw this, I thought of a Zen master, and she would say, she would say this: "Me, this turd at the center of the universe." Not as a description of reality, but a description of the view, of the wrong view. Uh, that's important to get this. You know. It's a made-up story. And so here we come to maybe start to have tenderness towards the, you know, release the clinging to that false view and start to laugh at it some. The third noble truth is, uh, is the doctor saying, actually we can heal this completely. It's possible to put an end, uproot Uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. It's possible to clarify things uh, completely. And anything 
before that, you know, any kind of release before that. It's possible to do this. And then the fourth noble truth is the prescription. Honey, listen well. Here's what you're going to do. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that's what we call the Noble Eightfold Path, or the practice that we've been doing here this week, is that. So there's an aspect of not harming uh, each other and ourselves, you know, protecting, offering protection, so that our mind can uh, be a little bit more at ease. And there's an aspect of uh, developing the heart and mind, that's what we've been doing, uh, sitting and walking, There's an aspect of uh, developing wisdom. The talks are meant for that. The practices we do are meant for that, to see more clearly what is what. Make peace with an unstable world. And so maybe one, uh, just one aspect of the, of the, the, of the path here, um, the harmlessness that will lead uh, onward towards uh, liberation, freeing of the mind that is stuck and engaged and uh, preoccupied. You know? And so that comes from the Manzanita village. And in Manzanita village, uh, there's two teachers, Katriona Reed and uh, Michelle Benzamin Miki. Katriona is a trans woman and um, they're Michelle is an artist is an amazing uh, visual artist and I think she's an Aikido master also yeah I've seen a few videos of her like whoa incredibly beautiful and precise anyway so they have a retreat center in the south of California and so they uh They, um, they uh, wrote their precepts, you know, the five trainings that we talked about on the first evening of non-harming. Uh, they reframe uh, them. And so, um, yeah, let, let yourself uh, hear this. Aware of the violence in the world and of the power of non-violent resistance, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate the compassion that seeks to protect each living being. Aware of the poverty and greed in the world, and of the intrinsic abundance of the earth, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate the simplicity, gratitude, and generosity that have no limits. Aware of the abuse and lovelessness in the world, and of the healing that is made possible when we open to love, I stand in the presence of the ancestor, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate respect for the beauty and erotic power of our bodies. Aware of the falsehood and deception in the world, and of the power of living and speaking the truth, 
I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth and future generation, and vow to cultivate the ability to listen in clarity and integrity in all I communicate by my words and actions. Aware of the contamination and desecration of the world and of my responsibility for life as it manifests through me, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth and future generations and vow to cultivate discernment and care in what I take into my body and mind. And so we come here to learn how to meet the world, how to not hurt ourselves and others, how to honor what's uh, alive in here and wants to express itself. Um, and maybe in the world of uh, our dear sister Mary Oliver, dear queer sister. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bone, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. through non-harming, through mind and heart development, as we are doing here, uh, through the development of wisdom, uh, we are actually learning to protect ourselves and protect others, um, to support ourselves and support others. And it's an act of generosity to do this towards ourselves and other, others. Generosity in the teachings is, um, is uh, one of the central aspects, one of the pillars of this generosity. And here this week we've been practicing it in many ways, you know, through the, you know, giving rides to each other, to the, to the jobs that we've done, through the showing up. You know, we became literally pillars for each other, you know, showing up again in the sitting. Maybe not for us but to support others in doing that uh, at different times for us and at different times uh, for others and at other times led by others. You know, how many times have I come back to the hall because all the zombies were coming back? You know? 
otherwise I would have escaped, you know. But, you know, there was this, yeah, I'm going to come also, it's not easy to do this, but I'm going to show up. We show up for each other. And so I want to take a moment just here before dinner to talk about the particular aspect of the relationship we have together, the, the, the play of the generosity uh, embedded in the, uh, in the retreat, and it's the dana uh, towards the teacher and the manager. And so, as you know, I think it's been well uh, conveyed in the literature, uh, website, and the, and the letters you got, uh, that the, uh, during the retreat, the teachers, uh, the teachers are not supported by the organization to uh, uh, financially. You know, they're they're you know they're brought here, they're fed. That's kind of very minimal in terms of <laughs> them delivering the goods. You, know? <laughs> you bring them here, you keep feeding, you give them a bed. You know, so they could actually share the teachings, and that's what the organization does. You know? um, and similarly for Kate here, and so uh, in this um, in this tradition, uh, this, the, 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 we offer the support, and uh, there's been support that's been offered to us to be here. You know, so you, maybe in the past, and others, uh, have supported us so we can be here today. You know. uh, and there's always this uh, kind of mystery: is it going to keep going? You know. So, the, so we rely uh, for staying alive. We we need uh, shelter. Uh, as you know, it's it's uh, yeah, you know finding shelter and keeping shelter is not easy. Uh, and uh, you know we need to be clothed and uh, receive medicines and uh, care, you know, medical care, and uh, also food. And this is kind of ongoing. There's no end to this. Well, there's an end, but during lifetime, <laughs> and it takes resources. And so, very humbly, uh, you know, I bring this up for our consideration. <coughs> it's a very, uh, uh, very uh, vulnerable thing to do actually uh, rely on, on people. It's also a very beautiful thing to do because, you know, all we live with has been uh, generously offered and it, it, uh, it um, um, the English word relaxes here, but it's, uh, it's resting on consideration and care. And uh, we're, we're it, you know, it's been working up to now. It's extremely uh, fragile. Uh, the teachers uh, uh, have to go where they're supported. You know? So we see many teachers decide to go towards corporations. Uh, we uh, value these kinds of settings. And is it possible to keep doing it? Is always a question. So, so what? what's going on and so the beauty also of the dana system here of not charging for the teaching it it makes it uh, a little bit more democratic so it means we can be in different situations uh, maybe and be here you know some of us are in transition some of us in uh, 
with uh, disability. Uh, some some of us um, there's so many ways we're here, and some some of us have, have more means, and so there's a it's a, we all have access to uh, the teachings, and we have different resources, and so honoring this, how are we going to participate in this? Um, it's absolutely uh, done freely. We're talking about this because it's part of the culture. It's important that we all all aware of it together you know, as a community. And uh, yeah, and then you'll see what uh, what is your the way you want to participate in this and contribute. In the teaching, it says that there is uh, three occasions for an expansive mind state, for a joyful mind state is being inspired by the te- teaching, being touched. Wow, the gratitude that can come from that. Um, and being inspired to actually uh, uh, keep the teachings alive. You know, so, wow, this has 2,600 years. It seems like it would be valuable if it stayed alive. You know? And so being inspired to participate. And then <coughs> having participated, contributed in the way that we've did, done here with the practice this week, and in the other ways, the dana being uh, the one of the ways, then we can actually rejoice. I'm keeping this alive, I've kept this alive, and I've participated. So, these are some of the reflections that you might have around this. I notice for myself that if I, uh, in any situation, if I give too little of my time, or my consideration, or my resources, or my abilities. If I give too little, I'm not going to feel good. If I give too much, I'm not going to feel so good either. But if I give the most I can, I tend to feel good. You know? And so I think that um, Kate, uh, you know, tonight, uh, tomorrow night, in the week, she'll be able to rejoice because she gave us a lot. You know, she gave us the, the most she could. And that's what I sense from uh, Anushka and I also. So when I'm in the plane uh, uh, tomorrow evening, going back home, my sense is I'm, I'm going to be happy you know, that I gave the most I could, you know, supported the, in the most beautiful way I could, you know, not more. If I had given too much, then I would be in the plane exhausted, resentful, confused. I, I don't want this, we don't want this for anybody. So, thank you for this, and uh, bon appétit. And mm-hmm. uh, in the silence, huh, that is still very much uh, the vehicle here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Do you need to explain some of the specifics, or it's self-explanatory? Like outside. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, so you'll see for the, the dana 